0: Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Our text from Proverbs begins with Solomon writing about what he calls a worthless person. He also writes that the worthless person is a wicked man, uh, and a wicked man who, has, who walks with a perverse mouth. Uh, the words wicked and perverse are moral terms. They describe a person's character. But when Solomon writes about a worthless person, um, that's not an assessment of character. That's a, an assessment of value. He's making a statement about the person's worth He's saying this person is worthless, he has no value. Is it appropriate for Solomon or anybody else for that matter to say that a person is worthless? Doesn't the Bible teach us that every person is made in the image of God? And isn't this why we believe in the sanctity of all human life? Isn't this why we defend the life of the unborn? Isn't this why we promote orphan care? Isn't this why we oppose euthanasia? How is it proper then for Solomon to write that a person is worthless? Whenever challenging questions like this arise from a passage of scripture, we often discover the answer by looking behind the English translation into the original language. And in the case of our sermon text, the original language is Hebrew. And when we look at the Hebrew word that's translated into English as worthless, it's a word that you may already be familiar with. It's the word Belial. And I say you might already be familiar with this word because it's used in 2 Corinthians 6.15. In writing about how believers are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, Paul rhetorically asks, what accord has Christ with Belial? Now, the word Belial is used 27 times in the Old Testament, and it always refers to somebody or something that's acting in opposition to God's, de- God's declared will. For example, in in 1 Samuel 2.12, we read that Eli- Eli's two sons were Belial. How were they acting in opposition to God's declared will? Because they were priests, and priests were commissioned by God to intercede Uh, for the benefit of his people. But Eli's sons did not intercede for the benefit of the people, rather they abused the people. So they were Belial. They were acting in opposition to God's declared will. Another example is in Judges 19, when the Levite and his concubine arrived in Gibeah. The people of the city were described as Belial. How were they acting in opposition to God's declared will? Well, because they were supposed to show hospitality to these travelers, but instead they harassed the Levite and they killed his concubine. And one more example was when Jezebel plotted to steal Naboth's vineyard. 1 Kings 21 verse 13 says that she found two worthless men, two Belial's who would intentionally give false testimony about Naboth so that he could be killed and his property could be seized. In all three of these cases, the people described as Belial are acting in opposition to God's declared will. And this made them worthless people, not in the ontological sense of the word worthless, not in their value as human beings made in the image of God. That's not what's being described here. Rather, they're worthless in the sense of their ability to contribute or the contributions they make to building the kingdom of God. They're worthless in their contributions to subduing the world for the glory of God because rather than acting in accordance with God's revealed will, they're acting in opposition to God's revealed will. Rather than seeking to glorify God, they seek to glorify themselves. Rather than building up the people of God, they tear down the people of God. Rather than promoting righteousness and justice in this world, they promote evil and injustice. The word Belial, therefore, broadly encompasses anything that's in opposition to God. So when the apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthians about being unequally yoked, he chose not to translate Belial into Greek for it would lose some of that, that inherent significance. Rather, he let the word serve um, uh, speak for itself and he used it very specifically as a, uh, a reference and a name for Satan, who is the foremost of those who are opposed to God and his revealed will. What accord has Christ with Belial? The Hebrew-speaking Israelites that Solomon is addressing our sermon text to would have understood that worthless person Solomon is writing about is describing as a person who's acting in opposition to God's declared will. And to demonstrate just how worthless this man is as a servant of God, Solomon describes him in verses 12 through 14 as a wicked man who walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eyes. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. And the word wicked in verse 12 literally means to, to pant as if to exert oneself to the point of fatigue. So the worthless man that Solomon is describing is a person who exerts himself against the kingdom of God with such enthusiasm that he exhausts himself to the point of panting. Solomon goes on to insinuate that this worthless person's perverse mouth speaks deceptions and tells lies. The the winking of his eyes and the signaling of his feet and the pointing of his fingers indicates that this worthless person is not working alone, but he's working in conjunction with other worthless people. Like, Like a third base coach who's making all these covert signs and gestures to the runner on base. The worthless person is winking and gesturing to his accomplices as a, secret, as a secretly scheme against their unsuspecting victims. And if you pay close attention to our sermon text, you'll notice that the worthless person's sinful behavior listed in verses 12 and 11 correspond very closely to the six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven that are an abomination to him in verses 17 through 19. Verse 12 says that the worthless person walks with a perverse mouth. Verse 17 says a lying tongue is an abomination to the Lord. Verse 13 says a worthless person winks with his eyes. Verse 17 says haughty eyes are an abomination to the Lord. Verse 13 says a worthless person shuffles his feet. Verse 18 says feet that are swift and running to evil are an abomination to the Lord. Verse 13 says, the worthless person points his fingers. Verse 17 says, hands that shed innocent blood are an abomination to the Lord. And verse uh, verse 14 says that a worthless person has perversity in his heart. Verse 18 says, a heart that devises wicked plans is an abomination to the Lord. In addition, if you look at the order in which the abominations are listed in verses 17 through 18. You'll see that they start at the top of a man's body and they work their way down to his feet. So haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil. This is Solomon's way of saying that the worthless person is wicked from head to toe or to borrow the language of Romans 6, the worthless man's, uh, the worthless person presents all the members of his body as instruments for sin and unrighteousness. He presents his eyes, his tongue, his hands, his heart, and his feet as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, so that in essence, he is uh, heaping sin upon sin. Romans says it's lawlessness leading to even more lawlessness. And this is what the Bible calls Belial. This is what the Bible calls a worthless person. Now, becoming Belial starts out as sinful desires within the heart. The sinner is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. This is when the internal sin becomes externalized. The sinner soon begins to scheme, to lie, to manipulate, and sow discord in the manner that we read about in our sermon text. What was first just a private matter of a person's heart has now become a public matter that impacts, directly impacts the lives of other people in some significantly negative ways, Sometimes the worthless person fully intends to impact other people's lives in negative ways. For example, when he steals, he knows his victims are gonna suffer loss. Or when he gives false testimony, he knows his victims are gonna be harmed. But the worthless worthless person doesn't care. He doesn't care because he's more interested in his own well-being than he is about his victim's well-being. But there are other times when even the worthless person doesn't actually intend to harm anybody. He's been led to believe that certain sins have no victims. For example, many people think, uh, many people believe this about pornography. They say, I'm just looking at a picture. How does that harm anybody? And many people believe this about other types of sexual immorality. They say, we're two consenting adults. There are no victims here. The reality is, every sin has victims. There are always unknown and unintended consequences to sin that cause other people harm and suffering. God has created this world in such a way that every one of us are connected to other people. Through our family, we're connected to our siblings, parents, Grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and so forth and if we 're married we 're connected to our spouse and then their whole family structure as well and if we have children we 're connected to them and outside of our family, we have connections with our friends with our neighbors with our schoolmates our coworkers, our employer, our clients and customers, our vendors, and so and so on and so on. each of us is part of this large complicated network of people that provides you and me no more than six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon. So when you sin, the inevitable consequence is that you're going to injure somebody that you're connected to. Let me repeat that. When you sin, the inevitable consequence is that you are going to injure some of the people that you're connected to. Sometimes it's very predictable how your sin will impact other people. If you commit adultery, your spouse and children are gonna be deeply impacted by your sin. But other times it's not so predictable how your sin is gonna impact other people. And this is particularly true for those sins that we've been told have no victims. In warfare, when a military strike on an enemy target unintentionally kills civilians, that's called collateral damage. Sin always has collateral damage. Sin always has unintended impact uh, on other people. And that's just the nature of sin. There's always collateral damage And those who are the closest to the sinner are typically the ones who get hurt the worst. For example, the sin of greed will often lead to poor financial stewardship. And where there's poor financial stewardship, children may not be getting the food and clothing that they need. Bills probably are not getting paid on time. And when bills go unpaid, this impacts the people who are not receiving the money that they're supposed to be receiving. And so now perhaps their children are not getting the food and clothing that they need. That's collateral effect. That's the collateral damage of sin. Or take the supposedly victimless sin of pornography. Not only does the sin harm the person who's using pornography, so there's number one victim right there, but if he's married, he's harming his spouse, there's another victim. And if he's not yet married, but will be, then he's harming his future spouse because whether married or unmarried, in both cases, pornography will degrade and it will corrupt the intimacy between a husband and a wife. And so there is collateral damage that happens either immediately or down the road. And in many cases, the use of pornography leads to inappropriate acts that are acted out upon innocent people, in many cases, children. And so those are victims as well, victims of pornography. And that's just touching a couple of the victims that are downstream from pornography. On the upstream side of pornography, there are other victims. All the exploitation, trafficking, assault, human degradation, and whatever other crimes, violence and defilement were committed in the production of pornographic material is part of the damage as well. None of of that would be happening if there were no consumers of the pornography. The consumers therefore have blood on their own heads. Just as the guy who hires a hitman is guilty of murder, so the consumer pornography is guilty of all the crimes against humanity that, that went into producing that dreadful material. The point I'm illustrating is that every sin has collateral damage. You may think that you can keep the sin to yourself. You might think that it's not gonna go any any further than what you can control, but there's always gonna be unanticipated and unpreventable collateral damage. Sin always impacts other people. And when the bomb explodes, the people who suffer the greatest injury are those who are standing closest to you. What Solomon is describing in our sermon text is the same thing that Paul described in Romans 6. Paul warned in Romans six nineteen not to present your members as slaves to lawlessness. Then he said that lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. And what he meant by this is that unrepentant sin rapidly grows out of control. It's like a little pine cone that starts rolling down a snowy mountain the more it rolls, the, 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 the more snow it gathers and the more snow it gathers, the larger the snowball grows. And it doesn't take long before a massive ball of snow is rolling down the hill, breaking off tree branches and damaging everything within its path. That's the life of the worthless person. Now take heed, my friends, the moment you see those little pine cones of sin begin to roll down your hill of life, you need to stop them immediately. And the only way to stop them is by falling down on your knees. The only way to stop sin from snowballing in your life and crushing the people that you love is through repentance, which is confession of sin and forsaking of sin. Uh, For those who refuse to repent, uh, they can expect their sin to continue snowballing. Not only will they be injuring other people, but they're going to be injuring themselves. And they'll become unprofitable in the kingdom of God. Because they're acting in opposition to the revealed will of God, they will be counted amongst those who are belial. They'll become worthless people. Our sermon text is not only a warning against becoming worthless people, but it's also a warning about worthless people. In other words, Solomon wants us to understand the collateral damage worthless people will bring on the people of God. Look at verse 14 of our sermon text. What is the result of all the worthless persons scheming and lying? Discord, discord. The worthless man sows discord, God tells us. Now look at verse 19. What stands at the end of the six six things the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him? It's the one who sows discord among brethren. Brothers and sisters, Solomon is telling us that worthless people will try to introduce division among us. Solomon is telling us that the little pine cones of winking eyes, pointing fingers, and shuffling feet will grow into huge snowballs that come crashing into the church of Jesus Christ. And if we don't handle these situations according to the commands and principles God has revealed to us in His Word, our unity will be compromised. Accusations will arise, defensive postures will be taken. And before you know it, conflicts and disputes will bring division even amongst the brethren. Notice the word the Holy Spirit inspired Solomon to use in verses 14 and 19. Solomon did not write that the worthless person creates discord or that he incites people to discord, but he wrote that the worthless person sows discord. This of course is an agricultural term in fact, if we're reading this in Hebrew, uh, we'd notice a second, a second agricultural term in verses 14 and 18 as well. The second term is the verb that's translated into English as devises. This verb literally means to plow, like you plow a field. And so what verse 14 is saying is that with perversity in his heart, the worthless person plows evil continually as he sows discord. He plows evil continually as he sows discord. And as you probably know, a farmer plows the field before he sows the seed. And by plowing, he's preparing the soil to provide the optimal conditions for the seed to germinate and grow. So when Solomon writes that the worthless person is continually plowing evil and sowing seeds of discord, he's saying that the worthless person is very calculated in how he introduces division within the body of Christ. By plowing the the people of God, the worthless person is trying to gain our trust. He does this through deception and lying. We don't know that he's lying to us, nor do we know that he's scheming against us because he's doing all this with the wink of his eye and a shuffling of his feet so he can remain covert. Then, once he has sufficiently plowed the people of God, he'll begin to sow the seeds of discord. And once these seeds germinate, the weeds that uh, are growing from those seeds have the capacity to disrupt the peace and unity that exists amongst God's people. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear Solomon warning us that worthless people will creep in and begin plowing evil amongst us. And you won't immediately know this is happening. Why? Because a worthless person is intentionally deceptive. He's doing all this by the winking of his eyes, the shuffling of his feet, pointing of his fingers, and he does everything he can to hide the perversity that's in his heart. But there's one thing Solomon mentions at the end of verse 12 that will give all of this away. The worthless person walks with a perverse mouth. The worthless person walks with a perverse mouth. This doesn't necessarily mean he's going to go around cussing all the time it means that if you listen to him long enough, his speech will eventually reveal the true nature of his heart. What was it that Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 45? An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. The early sign by which you'll be able to identify the worthless person is the perversity that comes out of his mouth. Either he'll be speaking heresy, or he'll be full of boasting and pride, or he'll be showing contempt for God-ordained authority, or he'll be slandering people, or you'll notice that he finds enjoyment in speaking about things that Christians should not be rejoicing in. Or there'll be some other telltale sign that his speech reveals along these, along these type of lines. To ignore these things is to permit the worthless man to continue plowing with the intention of sowing his seeds of discord. And then he will sow his seeds. And once those seeds are germinated, it's going to be much, much more difficult to deal with a problem than if it's dealt with during the plowing stage. This is why Paul spoke such a solemn warning to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, beginning of verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, Men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now it would not seem strange, it should not seem strange, that the worthless person would want to sow discord among the brethren, because the worthless person is Belial. He acts in opposition to God. Contrast that with the character of genuine Christians. Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You will detect love for the brethren in the Christian's speech as well. You will not detect love for the brethren in the worthless person's speech that's where you're gonna detect the the perversity of his heart. But the speech reveals the heart. And so we listen to to people's speech, whether that is is revealing to us the love that they have in their heart for the brethren or the perversity that they have in their heart with the intentions of creating discord. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, our second sermon text, in verses two and three, that genuine Christians walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Don't miss that last part. Christians are eager to, to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Totally opposite of what the intentions of the worthless man are. He wants to sow discord. The Christians want to create and preserve peace. And very literally, what Paul is writing here is that the Christian acts like a prison guard, The language, if we were reading this in the Greek, would have the connotation that um, we are securing the unity of the spirit by shackling, like with a ball and chain, putting the shackle of peace on the leg of unity. That's how we're preserving it. We're taking the shackle of peace and we're putting it on unity so that unity cannot leave. Peace, therefore, is the countermeasure to the worthless person's plowing and sowing. That's why it's important that you and I are constantly committed to maintaining peace amongst the brethren. The worthless person's plowing will be ineffective when we are righteously committed to upholding peace within our body. And the worthless person's sowing will be ineffective when we are righteously committed to upholding peace within our body. And by constantly placing the shackle of peace on the unity of the church, we will defeat the worthless person's wicked schemes. In many cases, we might not even know it. We might not even know that there had been a wicked person, a a worthless person amongst us plowing uh, with the intention to sow seeds of discord. We might not even know that somebody was doing this because the peace that we had shackled to our unity was so strong that they came in, they tried to sow and they, or tried to plow, and I said, I'll move somewhere else. I'll go somewhere else. This is too difficult. So the question becomes how do we place the shackle of peace on the unity of the church? And the answer is given in Ephesians 4 1. Paul writes, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called. That's the answer, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. This is not referring to each person's unique calling in life, such as uh, this person's called to be a doctor, this person's called to be a homemaker, this person's called to be a baker. Rather, Paul is writing about the effectual call of salvation that God gives to every one of his elect. It's very similar to the statement Paul wrote in first uh, thessalonians twelve two uh, two twelve we exhort each of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You see the calling there it 's not a call to a vocation that you work at it 's a call into the kingdom and and to glory. We charge you to walk worthy, in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So to walk worthy of your calling means you live your life in a manner that's consistent with the revealed will of God. That's a very simple way of putting it. And that's the exact opposite of what the worthless person does. So note the contrast that's developing here. Uh, The one who walks worthy of his calling Is a person who walks in accordance with the revealed will of God. The the one who is worthless is a person who's walking in opposition to the revealed will of God. So, do you want to be profitable in the kingdom of God? Then walk worthy of the calling in which He has called you. Do you want to be an instrument of righteousness? Then walk worthy of the calling in which you were called. Do you want to maintain unity in the church in the bond of peace? Then walk worthy of the calling in which you are called. And Paul goes on in Ephesians 4, uh, the next couple of verses of Ephesians 4, to list four characteristics of what it looks like to walk worthy of the calling in which you are called. Uh, we walk with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. Lowliness is the opposite of pride. It's humility. Having received by grace, the grace of God, uh, blessings that are so great that their true value cannot even be expressed by words, it's only proper that we, the recipients of these blessings, would be filled with humility. We didn't deserve them. We didn't earn them. They were given to us by God's grace, which puts us in a position of humility, lowliness. There's no room for pride. Some people say that pride is the foundation of every sin a man can commit against God. That somehow, regardless of what the sin is, it can be traced back to pride. If this be true, then how important is it that we have humility in our lives? Somebody once said that Humility is the first, second, and third essential in a Christian life. It's like the realtor tells you the top three things are location, 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 right? We're being, somebody here saying the top three things in a Christian's life is humility, humility, humility. And I don't think any of us can argue with this statement. Gentleness has to do with approachability, The gentle person doesn't throw a temper tantrum when somebody comes to them with a complaint. The gentle person doesn't assume a defensive posture when somebody wants to share a concern with them. If peace is going to be maintained among the people of God, then we need to be able to righteously work through complaints and concerns with one another. This means that you need to be gentle enough that people can approach you Without them having to fear your negative reaction. And gentleness runs the other direction as well. If if you have a grievance with another person, then you should go to them privately and tell them, the scriptures say. But let it be done with gentleness. Gentleness needs to accompany your approach, not just your reception. Galatians six one instructs us in this manner, brethren: If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. The third and fourth characteristics of a person walking worthy of the calling in which he is called is long suffering and bearing with one another in love, and these two go together; they're complementary. Um, being long suffering is the quality of being able to handle one another's faults without the immediate need to avenge all wrongs. None of us are going to be perfect here on earth. So we need to be long suffering with each other, which means we need to bear with each other in love. That's how we will be long suffering. This emphasizes, of course, uh, our willingness to forgive It involves loving that other person even when our natural tendency is to be frustrated or upset with that other person. To say that we need to be long-suffering while bearing with one another in love indicates that there will be times when loving each other is going to be a burden. It's gonna be very difficult. That's what the suffering part of long-suffering indicates. There will be times when Loving each other is gonna be a burden. You're gonna find it at times burdensome to love me. And I'm gonna find it at certain times burdensome to love you. But if we're both walking worthy of the calling with which we've been called, we're going to be willing to suffer that burden and to do it for a long time. We're going to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace by expressing love and patience to each other while being humble and gentle. And this, therefore, is the the stark contrast between the worthless person and the worthy person, the person who's walking worthy of his calling. God is describing a person's value when he speaks of worth. But again, it's not Uh, man's intrinsic value as a human being that God is assessing. Rather, it's our value as his servants. It's our value as the workers in his vineyard. It's our value as bond servants who walk in obedience with God's declared will. It's our value as vice regents who take dominion of this world and build his kingdom. It's our value as the called out ones who endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in a bond of peace. May the Lord grant us the strength to walk according to the calling in which he has called us. May God give each of you and me his grace in order that we may be found worthy. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.